0: Beasts into the slot, make the right selection, but be quick for racing the clock. Pop goes perfection. Perfection's the race to beat the clock. If you're not quick. Pop goes perfection! Perfection from Milton Bradley. <laughs>
1: Another exciting episode of Pump Action Podcast. That's right, we're the hosts. I'm Ty Fighter.
0: This is T-Bong.
1: Yeah. And uh, today we are here to talk about a... Uh, 2010? 2008? I have
0: 2008. Uh, that's... 2008.
1: Okay, but it didn't really... Okay, hit big until 2010. Which, yeah, I guess I'd like to hear how that was eligible for the Academy Awards. But anyway, we're here to talk about 2008's The Hurt Locker. Yeah, with uh, Jeremy Renner um, and Anthony Mackie. Um, that's about it, though, actually. Which I thought was kind of cool, because you have to remember, like, uh, this is, you know, before they were uh, the worst Avengers. They were in this film. Um, which I shouldn't say that about Anthony Mackey because I think he is really good as Falcon, but Hawkeye, I could give or take. But um, yeah, at the time, this was basically a bunch of nobodies directed by Catherine Bigelow, um, mm-hmm. who um, I- I'm just going to go ahead and throw it out there, is uh, used to sleep with James Cameron, the best director <laughs> other than maybe Spielberg out there on the planet. <laughs> Um, which I'm sure you probably have a little bit of info on that as well, like how she ended up with this script in this film, correct,
0: maybe? A little bit. Okay, well, if not, I I don't, I have... I don't have any James Cameron tidbits. Oh, yeah,
1: I don't. Yeah, If you're if you're looking for those, um, you might have to go to uh, another website or another podcast. But, yeah, Hurt Locker. This was a first-time watch for me, and I absolutely love the film. Um now,
0: before we get started here...
1: Oh. I got,
0: I got a little treat here. Oh, what is this? Ooh. Ooh. I, some, I don't know if you can hear that. I got some. There you
1: go. Some hot Iraqi tea. Ooh, Iraqi tea. I've never had Iraqi tea. Let me let me give this. Cheers. Oh yeah. Ooh, I like that. Mmm. That's got a definite, uh, uh, real rich aroma. Kind of woodsy. I'm getting hints of. I'm getting hints of uh, sandalwood. In there,
0: <laughs> the tea is not actually from Iraq, yeah. but Judas, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, these little tiny teacups, which you obviously can't see. Uh, I did get them in Iraq. Oh, cool, and uh, yeah, very, yeah, it's very uh, the tea that we had in Iraq was very hot and very sweet.
1: Yeah, this is tell. super good. I've never had Iraqi tea out of Iraqi cups. Yeah, we're gonna have to get into that because um, I know this movie is sort of near and dear to your heart. Uh, before anything, thank you for your service. Uh, we appreciate, you know, all you did for our country. Um, I know as a, as a uh, uh, I mean, you've said on a couple of occasions, you know, sometimes it gets a little much um, to be thanked all the time. <laughs> but uh, I really do, you know, hear the listeners maybe want to hear your story about how you got involved in the military and some of the action that you may or may not have seen over there. And obviously, um, the question I I wanted to know, um, you know, how how true to life is this film? Because this is a super intense movie. And if this is in any way at all close to what it was like over there, I don't know how you came back with, you know, uh, as a complete human being. Because, my gosh, man, the paranoia, just the intensity, just the unknown the, it's, it was a lot for me to take in. I actually watched this film like three times because the first time I started to take notes and I got to the title screen and that's it because I was so enthralled with this film. <laughs> I just forgot to write stuff down. So
0: Did you happen to watch it again with the uh, commentary?
1: I actually did. Um, the I Catherine Bicolow. It see. was really cool, yeah. yeah. Um, and I got to learn a little bit about you know the screenwriting process on this film. Um, it was written by, is it Mark Bowl?
0: Bowl
1: Boal Boal Boll? Um he was a journalist mm-hmm. um stationed over in Baghdad, and what he did was kind of create a fictionalized version of events that he witnessed so it wasn't like all of these things happened to just one person um he was um he went out on details with some of these uh bomb uh, what are they called? Deton? What was it called? EOD.
0: Yeah. EOD. Explosive Ordnance Disposal. There
1: you go. Um, some of these bomb units and, you know, these are some of the things that he witnessed. Um, he kind of took an amalgam of different interviews of people that he actually knew and kind of created this narrative story around that. I think that's why some parts of this are really over the top because they're not just, you know, based on one character. They're based on many different characters from all walks of life, and um, yes, yeah, so it was a really great insight of how this film kind of came about and how this film was made, but um, I'd like to hear your, because you you were there, you lived this story, and so I'd like to hear your insight on it, because and I think the listeners would too.
0: All right, well, going back a couple steps, the reason we're talking about this movie in the first place is uh, we were actually going to do it a few months ago, but we just kind of got... distracted with our real lives yeah but um as we're recording this since june of 2023 and a a few months ago march of 2023 was the 20th anniversary of the u.s-led invasion of iraq yes and the start of the iraq war which is kind of while we're talking about this movie in the first place it's crazy to think that was that long ago Mm because it literally
1: just seems like five or six years
0: ago i feel and uh I think this is probably the newest movie we've ever talked
1: about. Yeah, and, and certainly the, the only Academy Award winning uh, best picture that we've ever. I mean, Crocodile Dundee, I think, I mean, won an award. I mean, but. all these other movies we've
0: talked about <laughs> obviously were robbed of the best picture <laughs> of Oscar. So.
1: Yeah. Hercules, come yeah. on. Ferigna was great. It was in a, yeah. <laughs> uh,
0: so, yeah, anyway, and as we did have mentioned a few times, I was in Iraq. Uh, I was not in EOD tech. I was in the infantry, but I was there in the two thousand and three invasion, and you know for about a year afterwards. So yeah, that's kind of why we're talking about this movie today. Um, it uh, yeah, a two thousand and eight American war thriller film directed by Catherine Bigelow, written by Mark Boal. Boal, mm-hmm. we should have looked up. Yeah, to I should his have.
1: Name. sorry about that, Mark, if you're listening. I'm going to say Boal. Yeah, we'll say that. We'll go with it
0: and it stars Jen- Jeremy Renner, Anthony Mackie and Brian Garrity as the three main characters on the EOD team. There's also appearances by Ray Fines, Guy mm-hmm. Pierce and Evangeline Lilly. Mm-hmm. Small roles.
1: Gosh, she was like barely in it at all. It was you know, crazy. Like two scenes or something. Yeah, like 20 seconds probably.
0: So, if you haven't seen the movie and if you haven't figured it out by now, from us talking about it. It follows a U.S. Army Explosive Ordnance Disposal Team near the beginning of the Iraq War. I think specifically it takes place in 2004. Mm-hmm. Uh, who are targeted by insurgents and it shows their psychological reactions to the stress of combat. And as you mentioned, Boal was the writer and he drew on his experience as a journalist embedded with EOD teams in the war. Catherine Bigelow, both produced and directed the film independently from a screenplay written by Mark Boal. He was embedded with EOD teams in Iraq for two weeks in 2004. He was already professionally acquainted with Bigelow before this. They worked on one or two other projects previously.
1: It better be Point Break because she directed (laughs) that one too. (laughs) If it's not Point Break, then it doesn't matter to me.
0: So while he was going on these missions with the EOD team, he kept in touch with her by email to kind of keep her updated what was going on. He created a fictional story based on his experiences in Iraq, and this became the screenplay for The Hurt Locker. And I think he mentioned at one point he talked to over 100 soldiers and mm-hmm. to put all this story together.
1: Yeah, I did want to say really fast, um, you just talked about it being um, kind of independently financed. And on the... Um, uh, Commentary on the uh, Blu-ray. I have the 4K, actually. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's right. <laughs> Only the best for me. But uh, on the on the uh, commentary, she talked about. You know, she had pitched this several times to different Hollywood producers, and um, they all wanted to make a lot of changes to the scripts, which um, is one of the reasons why I sort of shied away from a lot of these um, uh, Iraq War, um, Afghanistan. Films like Black Hawk Down and um, what was another one? Uh, uh, oh my gosh, American Sniper. What's the one with Mark Wahlberg? There's another one like Zero Thirty, Dark Zero Thirty, is that it or something like that?
0: Uh, Lone Survivor. Lone Survivor.
1: That that's Lone Survivor? what it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I, I, so again, um, the reason why I kind of shied away from those films is because I thought they were really like agenda heavy. Like I feel they were going to press like a certain ideal into my mind or or make me want to feel, which, you know, like a lot of war movies do that. But I think just with the climate, the political climate of the time, I just wasn't ready to just like see that. So full disclosure, I sort of stayed away from a lot of those war films of the 2000s because of it. Um, So she wanted to make this independently because those Hollywood producers wanted to kind of put that edge in there and she wanted to keep it, Agenda free which is a real I really like this about it because it's not really so much um, I mean really the only agenda that that I guess is hinted at is like the post-traumatic stress disorder which is something that affects everybody and not just one certain group you know what I mean. And I, I just really loved that it. it wasn't a it wasn't a, a conservative film it wasn't a liberal film it was just a war film and man it it just really kind of spoke to me and it made me understand better the hardships and the idea the stress that you know goes into combat because you know when you look at this on TV it's like oh we rolled right over them you know it's like oh we just blasted those those bastards away and you know da 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 and we got to go home and sleep but that's not true at all. You know, we weren't getting, I don't feel like we were getting the full story behind that. So I was glad to see a film like this kind of present some of those, the other side of like people like on the ground, like, you know, in the trenches, so to speak. So,
0: And uh, Boal said, quote, we wanted to show you the kinds of things that soldiers go through that you can't see on CNN.
1: Oh, wow. Well, there you go. <laughs> if I would have just let you finish, uh, we would have gotten to that. Sorry about that.
0: Top your tea off. Yeah, top my tea. I'm a. These are. This is delicious. All right. Bigelow likewise stated she was interested in the psychology behind the type of soldier who volunteers for this particular conflict. Bigelow and Boal started working on the script in 2005, and during this time, Bigelow also started working on storyboards to get an idea as to how the film. Should look and what she wanted to look for as far as filming locations. She wanted to make the film as authentic-looking as possible and have the audience feel as if they were in the thick of the action. Boal's screenplay was written in an episodic style with no real villain. The drama comes from the characters' interactions with each other and the environment. Um, that's that's one thing I did like about this is there's kind of little vignettes. It's yeah. Not really like one big story. There's uh just these little snippets. Right, right, right. Yeah. Which is also what I didn't like about it because it's the same characters going through every single
1: like, right
0: vignette when it should have been like different different characters yeah doing this thing and then other characters doing this thing
1: right there's a lot of um missed opportunity i feel of course this is just me you know armchairing this <laughs> armchair directing this film <laughs> but you know when they had the um on base psychologist you know like i feel that there was a should, there could have been a lot more detail on that character it, except they just they brought him out and then they blew him up um just to kind of show like anything could happen at any time mm-hmm. you know like you could be because is it a Garrity? Uh, uh, what was his his name though in the film? Um, was it England? Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, it's uh, Eldridge. Eldridge, there you go, Eldridge. Um, you know he he just said it's like where's Doc? Like I just was just talking to him, and so you get the idea. It's like anything could happen at any moment in time. Like you, he's right. Like you could just be having a conversation with somebody. Thirty seconds later, that person's gone. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I say gone, I mean obliterated, and you know the helmet rolled up, and that was all they had left of that guy, which is just. I mean, it gives me goosebumps and really is just it's hard to even fathom like what that would be like. And the psychological stress because, you know, Eldridge is the one I feel the audience, uh, you know, attached themselves to because he's like the everyday person like mm-hmm. in the film. He's scared and he's unsure of himself and he's overwhelmed and he's, you know, constantly needing somebody to tell him what to do you know, and I think that's your common everyday person that was, if in a situation like that, that's probably how I would feel, you know, and you don't have the cool collective calmness of like a a Mackie or a Renner, you know, there. But anyway, but
0: yeah. So for the main characters, Bigelow wanted to cast relatively unknown actors. Her reasoning was because with the lack of familiarity also comes a sense of unpredictability. So yeah, Jeremy Renner and Anthony Mackie are, huge Marvel stars now, but (laughs) back then they weren't really anybody. I mean, nobody mainstream, really. Right. Uh, Jeremy Renner was cast as Sergeant First Class William James, who is a composite character based on several people that Boal knew in Iraq. Up to this point, Renner's biggest role was playing Jeffrey Dahmer in 2002's Dahmer. Have you ever seen that?
1: Yeah, they they made a few of those. I know I've seen the Ted Bundy one. I don't think I ever saw the Dahmer one.
0: Uh, He had also played a number of supporting roles in various movies and TV shows. Renner spent a week training at Fort Irwin in the Mojave Desert in California, where he learned how to use explosives, disarm IEDs, and various other bomb tech-related skills, including the use of a bombsuit. Anthony Mackie was cast as Sergeant J.T. Sanborn. Before Hurt Locker, Mackie had done a lot of theater work and appeared in movies such as Eight Mile and Million Dollar Baby. Brian Garrity was cast as specialist Owen Eldridge. Garrity had previously done some TV work as well as appearing in movies such as Jarhead and We Are Marshall. Oh, that was another one,
1: Jarhead. Yeah, yeah. That's,
0: that's another one we should cover. Yeah. Most of the film was shot in Jordan within miles of the Iraqi border, sometimes as close as three miles to the war zone. Other locations, such as Morocco, were scouted for filming, but nothing else looked as close to Baghdad as locations in Jordan. Mm -hmm. Bigelow actually wanted to film in Iraq, but the production security team basically said, you'll probably be shot by snipers. (laughs) At the time, there were hundreds of thousands of Iraqi refugees in Jordan, and Bigelow found and cast Iraqis with theatrical backgrounds for many of the supporting Iraqi roles. The, uh, including the guy at the, the very end who blows up. Oh, the reluctant was, uh, yeah. suicide bomber. He was actually a, an Iraqi refugee yeah. living in Jordan. What a
1: scene, too.
0: Yeah. Principal photography started in July of 2007 in Jordan and Kuwait. And 2007, if you remember your recent history, was the year of the uh, President Bush's big troop surge in Iraq mm-hmm. when things really started going crazy over there. And Allied military presence in Iraq increased by tens of thousands of troops, so she picked a hell of a time to start filming, yeah, especially wanting to do it in Iraq right over the forty four days of filming, the average temperature was one hundred and twenty degrees Fahrenheit, multiple camera crews filmed simultaneously, resulting in two hundred hours of footage, and i kind of wondering how much that was and The nearest I could figure it out is, like, the average two-hour movie ends up with about 40 to 60 hours of footage.
1: It's 200 hours of footage?
0: Many people on the cast and crew were hesitant about filming in Jordan, considering it was right next to a major war zone. However, Bigelow said, once you get off the plane, you realize it's like Manhattan without the trees. (laughs) Maybe in the big cities. Yeah, I was gonna hate. say
1: there's that one scene where he like leaves the base and he, you know, he's trying to find, which is kind of an odd out of ducks, you know, a duck out of water scene for me. Like, I don't know, just sort of. I feel they needed to finish it somehow. They had to have something big happen, but I don't know. But they do see sporadic images of downtown or the big city, I guess.
0: The movie was somewhat difficult to shoot. At one point, Jeremy Renner got food poisoning and lost 15 pounds in three days. The bomb suit he wore all day in the stifling heat weighed 80 to 100 pounds. Mm -hmm. After he fell down some stairs in one scene and twisted his ankle, shooting shut down for a week so he could recover. Mm -hmm. This also allowed the rest of the cast and crew time to cool down since many of them were frustrated with the shoot and wanted to quit. (laughs) The armorer for the film had to make the ammunition for the sniper rifle since the real ammunition had trouble getting through customs. Because it was so difficult to get military props into the country, the special effects crew often resorted to using Chinese fireworks in place of gunpowder. FX artist Richard Stutzman had a bunch of fireworks blow up in his face one day and he had to take two days to recover. (laughs) (laughs) No one on the shoot, not even the main actors, had private bathrooms or air-conditioned trailers. Some of the locals apparently didn't like the crew being there as rocks and two-by-fours with nails were occasionally thrown at them. Jeremy Renner said they were even shot at a few times. For the cinematography, Bigelow wanted to have an immersive experience for the audience. She brought on cinematographer Barry Aykroyd to film the movie on four Super 16 millimeter cameras, often handheld in an editorial style. Did you know they shot this on Super 16? I did not know that, actually. I know
1: know it's all handheld because I think that just sort of adds to the chaotic, you know, landscape of what was happening um, or the environment just because it's like zoom in, zoom out, zoom in, zoom out, like cut close and just the shakiness of all of that. I mean, it gives it more of like a real life feel, like a documentary type feel.
0: Uh, Multiple cameras were used for action sequences to allow for complete coverage of the scene so the audience could see exactly what was going on. Editor Chris Ennis, who worked with editor Bob Murawski, said The Hurt Locker was kind of like a horror film where you're unable to see the killer. The ideas of Alfred Hitchcock about making your audience anxious were influential for us when we did the editing. Ennis spent eight weeks editing the film in Jordan before meeting Murawski in Los Angeles to work on cutting the film together for another six months. The goal was to make the film look as realistic as possible, like a newsreel documentary, using a minimum of special effects and other enhancements. For post-production work, the negative 16mm film was hand-carried on a plane from Jordan to London, where it was developed, transferred to digital, and then flown back to Jordan. This could take up to a week at times. So the producers eventually got a local radio station to let them use their internet to download QuickTime clips so they could actually look at the dailies in a timely manner. Oh, wow. Uh, (laughs) That's crazy. (laughs) So that's uh, kind of the making of the film in Jordan. Um, they cut it together. It uh, premiered at the Venice Film International Film Festival on September fourth, two thousand eight, where it got a ten minute standing ovation.
1: Yeah, and the commentary, Boel or Bowel or whatever, Boel. He talks about that. He goes, like, at the end of it, they just kept applauding and applauding and applauding. He's, like, at, the, at one point, he goes, it started to get uncomfortable. He's, he <laughs> like, I just wanted to leave. Like, just stop pl- applauding, please. And he's, like, looking down at his stopwatch or his watch, I guess. And he's, like, it went on for, like, seven minutes. He was, like, I, and he goes, it was just going and going and going. He's just, like, all I wanted in the world <laughs> is just please stop. Please stop. Please stop clapping.
0: <laughs> it screened at multiple other film festivals throughout the rest of 2008 and the first half of 2009. The first public theatrical release was in Italy on October tenth, two 2008. Summit Entertainment bought the U.S. distribution rights for $1.5 million, and it was released in Los Angeles and New York City on June 26, 2009. Throughout July, it was expanded to more screens across the country, and its final gross in the U.S. and Canada was a little over $17 million, or $24 million in today's dollars. Hmm. The total worldwide worldwide gross was almost fifty million dollars, or seventy one million, on a budget of fifteen million dollars. So it was considered a financial success. I didn't know it had made that little money. Like just when you think about how big a deal everyone made about it.
1: Yeah, I was gonna say um, I didn't realize it had only. Yeah, me either. Because I remember that being a pretty big film, like or at least I thought it was when it came out. But you also had some pretty heavy hitters that year, too. I think it was an Avatar out mm-hmm. that year, too, which I think dwarfed a lot of um, you know, cinema-goers' go- cinema experience because it was just just constantly being douched with, with <laughs> Avatar stuff.
0: Right. It was released on Blu-ray and DVD on January 12, 2010. In 2020, it was released digitally in 4K, and two years later, in February 22... It was released physically in 4K, which I believe is the version you watched. Yeah, yeah. DVD sales up to 2010 were over $30 million in the U.S. alone. So it almost doubled its income on DVD sales alone. Yeah. Which doesn't really happen anymore, it seems like.
1: Not anymore. It's all downloads now.
0: (laughs) The Hurt Locker was a massive critical success. It was the second highest rated film of 2009 behind Pixar's Up. Rotten Tomatoes has it at 97%, and Metacritic rates it at 95 out of 100. Roger Ebert said it was the best film of 2009 and the second best film of the decade. Film critics from Newsweek, the LA Times, USA Today, Entertainment Weekly, the San Francisco Chronicle, LA Weekly, the New York Daily News, The Wall Street Journal, Associated Press, The New Yorker, and NPR also said it was the best film of the year. The Independent Film and Television Alliance said it was one of the 30 most significant independent films of the last 30 years. Mm -hmm. And in 2017, the New York Times said it was the 10th best film of the 21st century so far.
1: Yeah, so I don't don't understand all of the hate because this one Best Picture in 2010, correct? Yes. And it's sometimes regarded as the worst best picture in a cat. which to me, like that's 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 a that's a stretch because there's some terrible films that were nominated for best picture or one best picture. Mm -hmm. So I don't understand all of the hate behind this because I thought this was a phenomenal film. The look of it, the feel of it, the the draw, there was just enough drama in it. There was just enough action in it. It was like to me like a perfectly constructed film and I don't understand like you know the, all the hate that it really gets.
0: Well, we are about to get into some controversy. Oh, there you go. However, the film received a lot of criticisms from military veterans and embedded journalists for completely inaccurately portraying wartime conditions. The film was accused of being a Hollywood version of war with poor operating procedures and soldiers acting irrationally and irresponsibly. Further criticisms include nonsensical sequences and plot twists and inaccurate representations of combat. Despite these criticisms, many veterans did concede it was a well-made movie and the best Iraq war movie to date. Mm -hmm. Other veterans were not so kind, saying they were amazed a movie so bad could do so well. A March 2010 review in the Air Force Times cited negative reviews from actual bomb techs who had served in Iraq saying the characters' actions in the film were grossly exaggerated and not appropriate, and that they were exactly the kind of people they don't want in EOD. Mm. Some embedded journalists agreed with these criticisms, saying many of the scenes in the film border on parody, and a former British military bomb tech said the film was immensely disrespectful to the many officers who have lost their lives. However, another bomb tech with 20 years of experience did complement the film's atmosphere and the difficulties of the job. So that answers your question a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I agree with almost all of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, as, I mean, I wasn't a, like I said, I wasn't a bomb tech, but I was there in Iraq in some combat. Mm-hmm. And uh, this movie is pretty ridiculous. <laughs> Even if you were not in combat, if you were just in the military, there's a lot of stuff you'll see in this movie that's like that's nonsense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So you don't have to be a Iraq War veteran or a war veteran to to see. It it does have a lot of military nonsense in it. Right. Very. It is a very Hollywoodized war movie.
1: Oh, that's crazy because, like, like, like I said in the commentary, she said that she was trying to avoid all of that. But I guess, like, when you're making a movie, like, it is a movie. Like, you want to make it entertaining, and you know, not to take anything away from what anybody said or did over there. You know, I'm I'm not one to ever you know do that. But you know, we we kind of go to these films to kind of get to break away from that for a minute. just a, t- a time to like chill out and like you know lose yourself, I guess, in a mm-hmm. film. Um, I don't know. Uh, I guess I'm sort of, right. now that you've said that, like I am now, I'm kind of, I don't, maybe I should take back what I said, but. Um,
0: no, I mean, I, I uh, I kind of agree with what you were saying that she said about it, because it's not like a lot of those other movies are pro-war propaganda. Right. Like, like in my opinion, the, the, the you know, Jeremy Renner's like a scumbag in this movie. Yeah. He's, he's not like heroic really in a sense of like the traditional hero. Yeah. I think um, Anthony Mackie and Brian Garrity's characters are a lot more kind of realistic in a sense. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think, I mean, Jeremy Renner's like the main guy, the main character in the movie and you, you kind of don't root for him in the traditional sense. Right, Like, right. you root for him because he's American, and, you know, he's on our side and all that yeah. stuff. But he's not, like, a good guy in yeah. the traditional sense.
1: That's it, that, because he's not even really, like, an anti-hero. Like, yeah. he's just...
0: Like, he's, of- he has serious mental health issues. Right. And that's kind of what they're portraying. So it's not like a... It's kind of a pro-U.S. film, but it's not, like, a pro-war film. Right. I think it's definitely anti-war. Yeah. So I think she was successful in getting away from that kind of Hollywood stuff. Yeah. And I do think it's probably the best-looking, one of the best-looking um, modern war films. Mm-hmm. Like, I think it, in my opinion, in my experience, it, it looked exactly like Iraq yeah. in a lot of ways, like the setting and just kind of being there. And you can kind of tell their... Um, a lot of times, are just dying from the heat and all right. that kind of stuff. So I think she did do a really good job with that kind of stuff. Uh, it's realistic in that sense. You're right. But um, the, the situations. The, my <laughs> my personal problem with the movie is the scripts. <laughs> not that it's not technically done, well right. done, but just the the uh, yeah the scenarios and like, yeah. It's, you, know, you said it's the uh, the best or the worst best picture movie. That's what it's been labeled I mean, as. I, I can, I can kind of see that. Yeah. Like it's. Well, it's, I it's I done very well.
1: Yeah. Well, <laughs> I looked up like um who what it was up against, and let me see if I have that list here. I have my notes. I have a ton of notes on this. So for best picture that year, it was Avatar, um, The Blind Side, uh, District Nine. Precious, uh, based on the uh, novel Push by Sapphire, Inglorious Bastards, Up, and a Serious Man by the Coen brothers. That's what it was up against. Mm -hmm. And out of all of those films, like, I don't know. I'd have to either say Avatar or this one. Like, I mean, when I'm talking, when you're talking, like, best picture, you know, those not to take away... I, you know, guiltily love The Blind Side, but it's terrible. Like this should <laughs> never be, a, you know, a, a best picture. It's just grossly, I don't want to say racist, but it is. <laughs> you know, I mean, it it really is. I didn't. I mean, Inglorious Bastards had some great moments. Again, mm-hmm. I don't think it was the greatest film of Tarantino's catalog. Um, Serious Man it was a Cohen Brothers film, so that's just, you know, it's going to be an out there film anyway. Um, what else did I say? <laughs> I already forgot. Precious. Uh, Precious. I never saw that, to yeah, be honest right. with you.
0: So I know that got huge critical reviews. Yeah. Yeah.
1: That. I think I've seen some of that, but I don't think I. It was kind of a hard watch because, yeah. like, people are not very nice to that
0: yeah.
1: young lady. It's just hard to watch.
0: I don't know. I'm, I mean, I'm biased against it in some way because, I mean, it's kind of hard to. Because I saw this. I didn't see it in the theater. I saw it maybe several years after it had come out. Yeah. And I watched it again a couple weeks ago, a week yeah. ago. Um, and I, yeah, I just can't, I can't look at it objectively just personally from what I went through. Right. So I, I can definitely see the criticisms. Um, I don't know. I have a hard, like, yeah, I have a hard, just have a hard time looking at it objectively and seeing how, how it, is the best picture. It was right. good. It's a good movie. Yeah. I'm not saying it's not, but
1: yeah. Yeah. And I also have nothing else to like base it off of, like to go off of. Cause like I said, I intentionally avoided a lot of those, you know, films of that era just because right. like of the agenda pushing, like, you know, pro war, you know, pro Patriot, like, you know, <laughs> I don't yeah. know. It was just a bit much for me. You know what I mean? So, like, I intentionally avoided all of those. So, um, it kind of makes me want to go back and, like, what what did I miss? Now that I'm much more older and I'm much more mature and I'm not so, like, opinionated about things, you know, try mm-hmm. to be more open-minded about things, like going back and looking at some of those films and just kind of, like, all right, well, now here's what I have. Because, like I said, I, this is the only one that I've seen. I, I intentionally avoided all of them. Um, you know, I'd much rather watch... If I'm going to watch a war film, I'm going to watch full metal jacket or I'm yeah. going to watch, you know, <laughs> but again, there's so much distance between that time period. And when I saw the film, you know, I mean, I had nothing, you know, I, I wasn't in Vietnam. I know a lot of people that were, mm-hmm. you know, and to base, I was kind of like what boot camp was like. And then the second half of the film was like, mm, kind of crazy, but I don't know. Like I, I just think enough time has passed now that I can look back on it and maybe get a better idea or a better understanding of why films like these were so popular and so because there was a bunch of them i feel during that time like yeah. lone survivor and all those
0: yeah. so despite all the criticisms the hurt locker was nominated for nine academy awards mm-hmm. winning six best picture best director best original screenplay best sound editing best sound mixing and best film editing the nominations it did not win for were best actor which was Jeremy Renner, mm-hmm. best original score, and best cinematography. Catherine Bigelow's win for, I believe, uh, Avatar won best cinematography. Yeah, I think it which, did too. Yeah. No way. <laughs> yeah, it's all done
1: in computers, right? I know, right?
0: <laughs> that yeah, I don't like Avatar.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I've watched it, and I just, I just don't see that. And I'm a huge Cam, Cameron Mark. Like mm-hmm. he's probably my favorite director behind Spielberg, but.
0: So uh, Catherine Bigelow's win for Best Director made her the first woman ever to win for that category. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. The Hurt Locker is also one of only two Best Picture winners on record, never to have entered the weekend box office top ten. The other film is The Artist. Oh,
1: uh, that's the silent film, right? I think that's the black and white silent film. Yeah, they did like the fake silent film. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. The Hurt Locker won a ton of other awards from the Directors Guild of America, BAFTA, and many other critic and film associations. It was also nominated for three Golden Globes. And if you want to look at everything, there's there's an entire Wikipedia page with dozens and dozens of the awards it's won. In 2020, it was selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry by the Library of Congress as being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant hmm so yeah big critical success moderate financial success yeah somewhat controversial movie i've
1: always wondered too you know like i mean i'm just shooting off the cuff here this is anything i had written down but just comes as we're talking about this um you know her being a woman you know do you think that her, you know her eyes saw it differently because it seems to me like you know a lot more the more when you have a female director or a woman director, the the films are more compassionate, they're more like I don't know, they're I don't know what I'm yeah, trying to say. That might be versus like having <laughs> a male direct this where it's just like all like explosions and balls and guts and bullets and you know what I mean?
0: Yeah, I think I I can't remember if it was Bigelow or the or Boal that said it or one of the editors or something, I can't remember. But they were like, um yeah, this movie shows how some people just love war, mm-hmm. and and not not like in, in the cool way, like in the Schwarzenegger way, but right? Like in the, this guy's a psychopath kind of way, right? So, yeah, there may be something because she was a woman that she could connect with something that a male director would not wouldn't see. see. Yeah, yeah, because yeah,
1: we have different experience. She brings her own experiences into which I think is pretty fascinating if you really think about it. But um, speaking of males and directing this film, um, I looked up on everybody's favorite um, website, Internet Movie Database, uh, on some tidbits on this film. <laughs> and uh, it, I did not know this, but apparently James Cameron had sat on this script for a while. Um, yeah. And then he decided he wanted to go off and do Avatar. And that's why he handed it off to his ex-wife, because they were married at one point, mm. And he said, you should make this film this is a film that you need to make. Mm -hmm. And so, um, when asked about like you know because it won best picture over his um which is kind of ironic that you know it's kind of crazy or coincidental maybe not ironic in the Alanis morissette kind of way (laughs) more coincidental but um they asked about you know like do you regret giving that up and he was like no not at all he was like if anybody needed to direct that film and win that it was her she deserves it
0: i'm sure his billion dollar bank account (laughs) is fine with it
1: yeah Yeah, i'm just gonna go cry myself to sleep on my hundreds (laughs) of millions of dollars (laughs) So, but, uh, um,
0: well, you, uh, you were, you mentioned like, you know, a week or so ago, you were talking about the scene at the end when he's in the grocery store. Yeah.
1: So I just want to run down, run through it really fast, kind of chronologically. Um, some of the things that just kind of stuck out to me. Um, first off, um, the, the film opens with like that, that quote, which kind of sets the whole thing up. And the quote is for the rush of battle is often a potent and lethal addiction for war is a drug. By Chris Hedges. Do you know where that quote came from by chance? Mm-mm. Okay, I don't either. I was just want to know if you might have known it, but I love the fact that it's already setting up that that these men are almost addicted to the thrill of battle and how that can be, you know, when you come home from experiencing something like that for a year or sometimes even more, just little mundane things as going to the grocery store can seem so overwhelming. So towards the end of the film, um, after the big explosion of the regret, regretful uh, suicide bomber. Um, Sanborn and James are kind of driving in this Humvee and um, Sanborn's just really like contemplating his time. Cause I think he's kept, he's getting ready to leave. It's like two days, I think before he's ready to go home and he's talking about like, I want, I want a son. I want to, you know, cause it kind of, it's a callback for earlier in the film when he's like, I'm not ready for all of that. And they're kind of, you know, chiding him a little bit about, well, do it, you know, give her give her your sperm, stud, is what he was saying. You know, he's like, nah, no, I'm not ready for that. But I think he had a different frame of mind coming home. And so um, he, I think he asks James, like, like, what is it about this that, you know, um, that you like so much? And he's like, well, I'll tell you. And then it kind of cuts forward to James returning home and back in civilian life, and he's... You know, shopping in a grocery store, and his wife, you know, says, you know, go grab some cereal. And he's like, What kind? She's like, I don't care, just pick something. And he's like walking down the aisles, and he just seems so small and insignificant down this cereal aisle because of the enormous amount of options that we have down our cereal aisle. And he's just standing there looking like he doesn't know what to pick, which is to me, sort of like the whole crux of the film is like here you have these guys that are making decisions life and death situations on a daily basis the wrong choice could kill you the wrong choice could kill your friend it could kill your platoon it could kill your battalion and you know now you're coming home and just this simple of like choosing the cereal was so overwhelming to him like he just picks one he just you know he doesn't just grabs a box and you know and then it kind of flashes forward to where they're making dinner and he's like just cutting carrots and, you know, sort of, he says, you know, like, well, they're needing more bomb techs over in Iraq. And she just goes like, just chop the carrots. You know, like, it's like she knows what he's asking what he wants to do. They probably had that conversation before just shut up and chop the carrots. And then it goes to his son, him and his son. And he kind of has that heart to heart conversation with his son who is only like one probably at the time or two. And he says, you know, like, you know, you love all these things now, but when you get old like me, like none of it matters. You only love, you know, one or two things. And by the time you get to my age or you're like me, you'll only love one thing. So basically he's telling his son, like he loves, he's he's more in love with the thrill of battle than he is the thrill of being a dad. So he's like picking war over his son mm-hmm. And so to me, like, that's what the whole film was sort of about. Like, there's... When these people come home, they have to go adjust back into civilian life. Did you w- have any kind of issues with that, you know, being away? <clears throat> if they didn't um, want to care to talk about it, I'm going to put you on the spot. <laughs> like, I'm, let me get out the recliner here and uh, get my clipboard
0: out. <laughs> no, um, I fortunately didn't have it that bad. I didn't really have any family back then. Yeah. Um, yeah, I... W- When we came back, um, yeah, I didn't really – I got out of the Army not long after that. Mm -hmm. And for maybe about seven or eight months, I didn't do anything. Right. I just kind of – I moved back in with my parents and just sat around watching TV and playing video games (laughs) for literally like eight months. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think that I just kind of was able to decompress from the military – Right during that time, not doing anything.
1: Yeah,
0: and that, you know a lot of people don't have that luxury. Right, um, because he had to come back and get right back into being a dad, yeah, being a husband. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, being. But yeah, I mean nowadays, like I'm not an adrenaline junkie at all. Yeah, <laughs> I wasn't back then either. Yeah, so I like I watched. I remember uh, you talking, telling me about that scene again. And when I was watching it again a few days ago, I was like, "Yeah, hey, I'll take that cereal aisle any day." <laughs> you know, I'll, I love go. I, I do the shopping, yeah. My wife and I, and I'm just like, "Yeah, I can get this many ounces for this much versus this <laughs> many ounces." Yeah, like that. I I love that. Like, I I don't care about. I wouldn't want to be back in war or anything. You know All right. I, I'm fine grocery shopping and being a boring person. So Yeah. But not everybody's like that, yeah, you know. I agree. Yeah. So yeah, I can like I get where where they're going with the movie. Yeah. But there's just so many different different experiences you can take away from it.
1: Yeah. So that's kinda what I thought was sort of the, the takeaway from the film is just like, you know, once all that is over, like these guys are just expected just to be dropped back into normal life and just pick up where you left off with very little support you know, and I feel like it's cut, it was cut before, like funding for those kind of, um, you know, uh, programs was poor to begin with. And I feel like it hasn't gotten any better really. Um, or there's some most, like a shame to want to talk to people about their experiences and, right. you know, and so, um, if you're out there and, you know, you're, struggling with those things, you know, please you know, reach out to those resources. You know, there's nothing, you have a, a combat veteran here that's telling, you know, it's his experience, you know, um, but that's yeah, not, it's not an easy thing and that's, you know, that's why we, we, we love you and we care about you, <laughs> yeah. do the right thing, <laughs> yeah. you know, so, but, uh, yeah, a couple other quick things I just wanted to kind of roll down. Um, the opening scene um, we talked about all the the handheld cameras kind of plays into all the chaos of what was happening at that time. Um, I love that little robot because like that little which was actually a military issued robot that they had permission to use Mm -hmm. um, in that very first scene and it's so crazy like I was like watching that little robot it kind of reminded me of Wally I guess (laughs) and I'm like oh and like he's going over those railroad tracks. I'm like, oh my God, he's going to, that little thing's going to blow up. So <laughs> I was just like, oh, I feel so sad. Like I, I had like empathy for that little robot. I don't know why, but that's like also like when the wheel falls off and he's like, get the suit. Uh, and that's sort of like a character in itself, which I think you alluded to was actually a real military issued, um, ballistic suit. Mm-hmm. Um, it did weigh like 80 pounds. It had a made of Kevlar. And, um, every time Renner, you know, insisted that every time that suit is on, on, in, on camera, he wanted to be in it. Um, and so that was one of the things that he kind of trained for, which we'll talk about here in just a bit. Um, but, yeah, so the suit um, kind of becomes its own character, uh, I feel, in the film. And it's a completely different way of how the opening sergeant walks in the suit versus how renner walks in the suit because i think the walk he had such an amazing walk in Which that is suit guy
0: Pearce, isn't it?
1: yeah yeah, had his guy pierce that's right yeah yeah the, the very first guy yeah yeah thompson i think was his name so i love that um and you also get the idea of what mackie kind of came from the, a different leader from thompson who was much more like a i don't know it's like a father figure but he was much more like all right, let's get everybody's ideas. And you know, you try first and I, and then we're like, all right. It's a more of like a team mm-hmm. versus, you know, Renner coming in and being like, you don't, we're going to do this and you're not going to tell me no. Cause I'm your Sergeant. Um, so that was kind of cool. Um, I'll see. Uh, oh, there was another one where like, um, there's a scene where I think they're going to this, the first, um, bomb detonation with Renner and they're driving like down the streets of Baghdad. It's, imam iraq or uh jordan though but it's supposed to be iraq and they're in the humvee and this car cuts in front of him in front of the humvee and it causes him to kind of break hard and um eldridge is up in the gunner position and he kind of like hits the thing he's drinking a bottle of water and he throws the bottle of water at that car, and the guy in the back seat's like doing like this, which actually really happened i, I learned on the the commentary like they had like that guy cut like cut the production off like it was like a real scene like that really happened, and they're like that guy in the back seat was probably wondering what the hell was going on. that's probably why he has that reaction because he like shakes his hands like what 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 yeah. um so that was kind of cool um but like the very first like bomb detonation scene where he goes down that street and you like, they're like, look for tripwires. Like you have to look just the whole idea that like any little thing, any little piece of trash could blow up on you is just crazy to me. Um, and you said that it was probably a lot of over-exaggeration, but like, and then all the people like watching, like, are they friend? Are they foe? Are they communicating? Are they not communicating? Just the idea of like, you don't know who's friendly. You don't know who's a, you know, um, who's an enemy. Like, it's just, so crazy to have to work under those kind of conditions. But when he finally like gets that one bomb detonated or, uh, you know, neutralized or whatever, I, I, I'm going to pretend, I'm not going to pretend like I know any kind of military jargon. Cause I don't, he's like getting ready to stand up. And he's like, Oh, got a wire. And he like pulls it. And then he like follows this wire. He's like, where are you going? And he's like, da he's like, where are you going? <laughs> and then he like hooks his up. Oh, got another, like, another, another wire and he like pulls up like that daisy chain of like five different bombs and I was like oh my god like that's insane so he's had time to like, uh, you know not detonate those but you know neutralize those so that was kind of cool I was just like oh! like when he pulled those out cuz it's just like oh my god he's like right in the middle of it and he like pulls that thing up and it's just like five bombs all connected together which was like crazy um I was going to ask you too um this movie you know talks really about IEDs um did you think like you know looking back on your experience now were we equipped to kind of handle were they expecting that much cuz that movie implies that like that was like the biggest killer of of everybody you know of of the highest casualties of soldiers was due to ieds not mm-hmm. like you know warfare or
0: gun gun battles so well yeah there were uh kind of like two different it was almost two different wars um, at the very beginning, when I was there and we first invaded, it was basically um, the U.S. and allies versus the Iraq military. So mm-hmm. it was it was basically a, a conventional war at the very beginning with you know bombing and shooting at each other.
1: And a clear good side and a clear and, bad side,
0: or at least two clear.
1: Two, two clear sides. That's true. I should <laughs> I mean, Let me back it up. We're not saying we're the good guys. Huh. <laughs> two sides. Right. Two sides. <laughs> we'll go
0: with that. Um, two clear sides. Yes. Two clear uniformed military, <laughs> conventional armies fighting. Yes. That's, that's true. Um, the allied side defeated the Iraqis. Yes. You know, in a couple months. And, and there, so there was kind of a lull in the action where we did start, attempt to start doing some nation building and mm-hmm. repairing infrastructure and stuff. And uh, then I left. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of my experience. It was oh, a gotcha. conventional war. We, the U.S. and allies, quote, unquote, won. Kicked their ass. <laughs> um, USA, we, U.S.A., We tried to, you know, do the rebuilding. Yeah. Then I, you know, which I was part of. I know I saw some of that going on. Then I left. I know I went home. And then what was not my experience was later on is when the insurgency kind of picked up. Mm -hmm. And that's when all these IEDs and roadside bombs and insurgents, that's when that really started picking up. So that's when this movie really starts going is kind of that that second part of the war where it was less a conventional war and more of a Vietnam insurgency. Right, right, right. Which I think
1: that this, that draws a lot of parallels to Vietnam, too. Mm-hmm.
0: So, you know, when I was there, um, it wasn't, there, you know, I never saw an IED go off. Yeah. There, there wasn't a lot of that. It was more like the stuff at the beginning with the Iraqi army and then just kind of random, random shootings and stuff. Yeah. So, um, and then, you know, you look at the, the Humvees in the movie. They've got the armor on the sides. They're in the gun turret. They've got the armor plate at the front. right? And, you know, our Humvees at the beginning of the war, they didn't have any of that. Yeah. We, we would take our doors off the Humvees as we would go down the street. Uh, we didn't have armor on them. We didn't, you'd get up in the gun turret. You'd just have the, the gun and there's no armor up there. Yeah. You're just standing up there. Um, and it wasn't until after I left that they started armoring the Humvees for IEDs and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Cause you know, when I was there, we'd put a couple of sandbags in the floor and mm. that was, that was our defense against <laughs> bombs. Yeah. Um, so it was definitely not at the very, the, maybe the first year or two, it was definitely not an IED bomb heavy war. Right. So that's kind of how one thing that I can't relate to it as far as this movie is. Cause it's almost like two different wars. Yeah. Yeah. So,
1: yeah. Well, like I said, reason I was going to draw a couple of parallels to, to Vietnam was, um, that scene where they go to like that bomb making factory and it's almost towards the end of the film, um, where, um, people there, he's, they're going through, which was really cool. Um, cause it's number one, it's shot in real time. So like it, as long as it took them to, to sweep that bomb making factory or the supposed bomb making factory, it was just like a old warehouse. You know, that was all done shot in real time, which I thought was kind of cool and kind of unconventional way of shooting something like that. So there's like a lot of tense moments because it's so quiet and he's like, mm-hmm. just stepping on he steps on the glass and you're just like, Oh my God, like, you know, is that going to alert somebody? And he's like touching the key, the tea kettle and he's like, it's still warm. And they're like, cigarettes still smoking. So like mm-hmm. they're here somewhere. We just got to find them. But then he, you know, goes into that one room and he finds that that kid laid out on the table spoilers and he's just like he thinks it's the kid that sells dvds on base um and even though like sanborn knows that it's not him and eldridge knows that it's not him like they're not going to tell him like that's not the same kid Mm -hmm. because they even had a conversation about like are you sure that was him he's like i don't think that was him (laughs) um but they're not in you know james or uh yeah james is mine like it is him you know But just the idea of him having to go through and, you know, disarm that bomb inside that kid's body was just like, God, like it's so horrific to think of like actual things like that happened, you know. Um, So that was like a heart wrenching scene. He's carrying that kid out, you know, um, because he thinks it's that um, the kid that sells DVDs on the base, which kind of leads me into like where the movie kind of starts to go off the rails a little bit where now it becomes his mission to find the insurgents that killed that kid or responsible for that kid's death, even though it's not really the kid. Um, And so he, like, leaves the base, and that's, I was like, okay, like, you know, and then they're going to go inspect that suicide bomber. This is, like, the literal end of the film, and he's just like, let's go hunt, let's go Haji hunting. And they're like, no, let's not do that. You know, like, we're here, that's not our job. He's like, well, I feel like getting in trouble tonight. You know what I mean? And so yeah. then it costs Eldridge to get kidnapped. You know, please go watch the movies because I'm going to spoil the crap out of it for you. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so, like, that's sort of, like, I just feel like they needed that or the, the filmmakers felt they needed that scene in there just to kind of create, like, some sort of narrative, I guess. Um, or cause, But even, even like what you said, like, at the end of that scene, you know, James is not a good guy. Like, mm-hmm. he's not. He ended up having to shoot Eldridge to save his life. You know, which I thought was awesome. You know, that was like another cool thing that I love. Like they have Eldridge loaded up on the gurney and get ready to cop you know, chopper him out of there. And he's like, Good luck, kid. He's like, Fuck you He's like, You shattered my leg in nine places, you <laughs> asshole And uh he's like you know, bye Sambor, I'm yeah. gonna miss you. And he's just like, Good luck out there, kid, yeah. you know? And then he's like and then James is just like, I'm sorry. And he's like, Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, awesome, was like, you fucking shot me. Which I thought was really cool because you never get that. Normally it's just like, I love you, man. It's man, nice. yeah. you saved my life. I appreciate you. Like, right. no, this dude is pissed off, <laughs> knowing that they went to do something that they should not have been doing. So I kinda like that. Um, I don't know, I have a couple more notes here, but I think oh. we've pretty much The sniper scene is pretty ridiculous. Yeah, that was another one, um, which I do, I think the reason why they put that in there was, um, you know, here you have, if you haven't seen the film, they're coming back from, like, detonating, which they actually talked about fragging um, James. um, uh, Sanborn and Eldridge talk about fragging him. Like, you know, I could set this bomb off, because they're, like, down in this desert or this valley, they're detonating all these bombs that they found. And he's just like, you know, we could, my finger could slip. You know, these things go off on their own all the time. And he's like, are you serious? And anyway, but I think that scene shows like, well, James does have it in him to be a leader because um, you come across these contractors, which I'll put in um, quotes because really they're mercenaries, mm-hmm. correct? Yeah, I think so. Um, and so what you have there is like the juxtaposition of here you which have is, these uh, trained. Ray, Ray Yeah, Ray Fiennes, um <laughs> which I think was pretty good in that yeah. spot. But you have like the juxtaposition of like these trained military guys that are making like that are well equipped, making thirty five thousand dollars a year, versus these mercenaries who are ill equipped, who are just they're adrenaline junkies. You know, mm-hmm. they're making $200, 250000 dollars a year for basically doing the same job, um, and it shows to me like they just got picked off like so fast, you know. Um, but yeah, the sniper scene where he's like. You know, grab that Beretta or whatever, and I get. Or I, again, I, it's a 50 caliber. Like again, I'm not gonna pretend like I know all the the ins and outs of you know armor and warfare and all that. But um, I thought it was pretty cool. Um, he was like, you know, when Eldridge is down at the bottom of that dune, he's like freaking out. He's like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. He's like, calm down. He's like, spit, spit on the ammo because he had blood on it. Because right. he's like, we need more ammo. This blood's causing the you know, the cartridge is to jam. And he's just like, I don't have no, kind of like a dry fish. I got no spit.
0: <laughs> 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 and
1: he was like, I can't remember what he told him to do. He's just like, calm down. I just need you to breathe. <laughs> so uh, he does have it in him. And like the other scene, like after, you know, they're up there perched um, there for a while, he's like, yeah, Give me that juice, which I thought it was like a pre sun, but I learned through the commentaries, like that's like a military issue thing was the juice, uh-huh. the juice packs that they were they were given. And, you, you know, James, you think he's going to open that. And he immediately hands it to, um, you know, taking care of his guys. So that was another one of those scenes where it's just like it's there, I think, to show that James is a leader and he does have a heart and he does care about the welfare of his, you know, his, his, you know, platoon or
0: whatever. But um, But where do they get the sniper training? They would would know it's like they're expert snipers all of a sudden. Yeah,
1: that's true. That's true. And they stayed, they stayed perched, which I guess you would have to do. Um, but again, it, it, this is all a movie mm-hmm. and I think they have to dramatize a lot of these scenes to make it interesting because you're right. I like, I don't think a bomb technician is going to know anything about sniping, um, little to the left. I got him, which is kind of cool. Cause like those, that 50 caliber it said has like a, I looked that part up because I was like, I wonder how far that is away. It has a range of like a mile, I believe. Which means like they could be those houses that they were stationed in were like I mean, you couldn't even see them you know unless you had that scope out. so I thought that was kind of cool too. Uh, but anyway, I think that's probably most of my um I think we've already talked a lot about everything else, um the grocery store scene, we talked about that, the regretful um, oh well, okay, I, so the regretful suicide bomber at the very very end. I did kind of see that as James's kind of redemption for screwing up the mission of them trying to find the kid. Um, so I felt like, you know, he was like, well, if I can't save that kid's life, maybe I can save this guy's life. And he's trying to cut the locks off. He's like, this is hard and steel. And just the way he says, like, I'm sorry. Like, I can't, I can't, I can't do this. I'm sorry. And the guy just starts praying. He's like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You know what I mean? So I kind of thought that was like his redemption moment where he's like, he wanted to do the right thing, but he just, couldn't mm-hmm. and then i guess to beckham the boy wasn't dead which i thought was kind of i didn't quite get like why he when he saw the boy and he realized that he was wrong like right. he didn't immediately go over to him he literally ignored him right um i don't know whether he was like ashamed or like i don't know what what that whole thing was about which kind of i don't know if anybody out there that watched the film has any insight let me know cuz that was one thing i didn't quite get mm-hmm. but Anyway, so we're pushing about an hour, so I guess we might want to start wrapping. I could talk about this film. Like, this is a first time watch for me, and I absolutely loved it, and I appreciate you recommending this because um, I don't think I would have ever watched this film without your recommendation because I just had no interest um, in those movies, unfortunately. But now, again, my interest has peaked. Now I want to go back and maybe watch Jarhead, Black Hawk Down. Um, what are some other ones?
0: Well,. Yeah, Lone Survivor we talked about American Sniper. Yeah, there was a bunch in the kind of like the two thousands. Yeah,
1: two thousand tens. Yeah. All right. Well, um, while T Dog is looking that up, I'm going to tell you the top ten highest grossing war movies of all time, as ranked by Box Office Mojo. Oh, okay. So. Um, well, before I read this list off, what are your top three favorite war films of all time? Hmm. And I'll throw in Rambo, because, I mean, it's not really a war, <laughs> but, um, you know, missing in action, like, go
0: ahead, lay it on me. <laughs> oh, wow. Top three. This is tough. I would say... Um, I'll give you I'll give you my top three... Probably uh, most realistic modern war films. Okay. Because I don't know what my favorites would be. There's too many to pick.
1: Yeah, but this would be top three that I would need to watch then. Yeah,
0: I, would, uh, I would say so. Yeah, yeah. if you want realistic modern war movies, these are probably my top three recommendations. Jarhead. Mm-hmm. Um. I would say... Black Hawk Down? Uh, Maybe not necessarily because it's based on a true story. I don't know how true it is to the actual events. But as far as it being a military movie and just the way the soldiers talk and act and react and all that stuff, I think it's a pretty realistic portrayal of the military. And my third pick is... Not a movie, it's a series on HBO, Generation Kill. Mm,
1: okay. Yeah, I've seen that at like Vintage Stock and stuff. I didn't have
0: HBO, but... I think it's seven episodes.
1: Oh, okay. I did not realize that was about the uh, Iraq War.
0: Yeah. Um, Jarhead is about Desert Storm. Okay. Uh, Black Hawk Down is Mogadishu or Somalia? Mm-hmm. Is Mogadishu I don't know, I've never seen it. (laughs) Fallujah? I don't know. It's in the 90s. Okay. Uh, and uh, Generation Kill is the invasion of Iraq. Oh, okay. It's, okay. It's, uh, the first invasion. Is, uh, no, the Iraq War. Oh, oh, oh 2003. okay. Two thousand three. Gotcha,
1: gotcha, gotcha. Okay.
0: Uh, yeah. Um, to, I would say if you want realistic war movies, those three. As, far as modern war, yeah. Those those would be my three picks. Awesome. Well, I will definitely. I do. And of course, uh, you know first blood part two is of course the most realistic <laughs> yeah.
1: one man takes on the entire <laughs> Viet Cong, the, the whole country of vietnam i just recently watched that because i got the 4k version and it's glorious in 4k but um yeah, there's
0: so many good vietnam ones. yeah uncommon valor
1: oh yeah that's a great hamburger, hamburger hill. hill yeah that's
0: yeah Born on the fourth of july
1: oh man yeah uh i'll give you my top three okay. um and again, I, I just kind of came at this as you know ones that I will watch at least probably once a year. Um, I think n- number three would probably be um, uh, Apocalypse Now. <laughs> like I don't know why that I love that film. It's is ridiculous too, mm-hmm. but I love everything about that movie because it's so batshit insane. <laughs> and, and and even more so, I have like the dossier version, which has like six different versions of the film. I don't right. six is exaggerating. But also included on it is the documentary, The Hearts of Darkness, which I thought was was about the making of, which is, to me, almost as interesting, if not more interesting than the actual film itself. Um, There's a lot of stories about Apocalypse Now, so that's probably number three. Um, I'm a big fan of Platoon as well. Um, I love that film. I think that is almost a, I don't want to say a perfect film, because, again, I wasn't there. Um, But I know, again, just, some of the Vietnam vets that I have spoken to about that film, they said it's pretty realistic. And I mean, we can talk about the two sides of how that film works one of these days. Um, but probably my favorite war film is just saving private Ryan. <laughs> and I think after that one, like there's nothing else that could ever hold a candle to that film.
0: That's probably the best.
1: <laughs> yeah. I just, Oh my gosh, man. It's a like hard watch. it yeah. is a very hard watch, but God, I love that movie so much. Um, but anyway, so I'll give you the top 10, um, highest grossing war films of all time as ranked by, um, box office mojo. Number 10, good morning, Vietnam. <laughs> yeah. 1987, Robin Williams, $124 million, which I really love that movie. I haven't seen it in a while, but I loved it. Uh, Soundtrack is great. Um, number nine, Platoon, uh, 1986. Um, it grossed $138.5 million, directed by Oliver Stone. Uh, 2013's um, Lone Survivor comes in at number eight. It grossed uh dollars one hundred fifty-four, excuse me, one, one hundred fifty-four point eight million dollars. Uh, had a limited release on Christmas Day, and then it was released wider um, later that year. Uh, next one, Black Hawk Down, which um, two thousand uh, one, one hundred seventy-three million dollars. I didn't realize that Ian Mcgregor was in that, and I didn't know that Ridley yeah. Scott directed that too.
0: There's a whole bunch of people in that movie yeah. right before they got famous. Yeah.
1: Uh, I don't even what number I'm on here, but the next one is The Patriot, Mel Gibson. Yeah, uh, Roland Emmerich's uh, 2000 uh, film, The Patriot. It grossed 215.3 million dollars. Uh, next one is 1917, the World War One film. Uh, It grossed $384.9 million. That one that just
0: came
1: out? Yeah, it came out in 2019. Or wait, 2019. Yeah, 2019. Sorry about that. Uh, Sam Mendes directed that one. Uh, This is one of your personal favorites. Um, Pearl Harbor. (laughs) 2001. Yeah. We should hate review that movie. Yes. Uh, It it grossed a whopping $449.2 million. Michael Bay. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. (laughs) Pearl Harbor. Uh, And then, okay. I don't thought this was number one, but this might be number two. Saving Private Ryan. Uh Uh, 1998 Spielberg's classic, uh, forty four hundred eighty two point three million million.
0: Is that the one that lost to Shakespeare in Love? Uh,
1: oh, probably. I'll have to look that up. We might have to do that one because that I mean, I mean, that's a hard watch, and there's so much to go over that. But um, I got to see that in a theater, which to me is mm-hmm. the only way you should have seen it because I'm a big Spielberg mark, and anything that Spielberg, if he could direct the phone book and I would be there to <laughs> to watch it. Um, but anyway, I even went to see Ready Player One.
0: I like that movie.
1: <laughs> it's not his best. It's not his worst. I don't know if he doesn't have a worst. Nineteen forty two, maybe. I don't know. Duel. I don't know. Anyway. Um next, I think we're in the top three here. I kinda lost count. Uh, Dunkirk, which I thought was so boring. Like I wanted to like that so much.
0: Um, I liked it. I liked it because it was it was it was kind of boring. Yeah. But I don't
1: know. It was just so dull. Like, I watched it, and it just like, oh, oh, God.
0: I liked it because it wasn't a traditional war movie kind of. Yeah, yeah. Kind of like a behind-the-scenes kind right,
1: of movie. Right, 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 yeah. But that grossed $527 million. And then that's number two. The number one, the highest-grossing war film of all time. You want to take a guess?
0: I'm for Red October.
1: No, <laughs> no. You want to take another guess?
0: It better not be Braveheart. Not
1: Braveheart. Okay, I
0: don't
1: know. It grossed $547.4 million.
0: Schindler's List?
1: No. came out in 2014. Uh, American Sniper.
0: Oh,
1: man. It made that much money? It made that much
0: money. Hmm. Thoughts? I
1: mean, I I liked American Sniper. I didn't know it made that much money. But wasn't it like, okay, this is all probably a topic for a whole other show, but wasn't like a lot of his stuff didn't it come out like not true or something or was over exaggerated?
0: Yeah, he was apparently kind of a douchebag. Oh, that what it was. Okay. Uh he lied about a lot of stuff. Okay. I don't know specifically I, I don't remember what specifically, but yeah, yeah. it did come out and he was kind of he had some issues. Yeah. But yeah. the movie was, I thought it was pretty good. Yeah. It almost won Best Picture. Did it? Yeah. It was
1: nominated. It seems like a lot of these films were, but like, wasn't the Black Hawk Down also nominated, or did it win? I feel I, know, I can't remember. I mm. feel like it just... There was another one that came out not too long ago, too, about um, ah, the helicopter, the whole thing with Clinton. What was that called? Hillary Clinton, it was like the helicopter, the oh, old, uh,
0: yeah, the Lib- Libya, yeah.
1: Uh, I guess it wasn't really, I think it's in Iraq, but I guess it's not anyway. All right, well, well as I as I move on, so um. You know, the summer of Swole is also here upon us. And I don't know about T-Dog. He's looking pretty tight over there. Um, myself, you know, I was wanting to enter the summer uh, looking like King Kong, but I feel like I'm looking more like Dr. Zayas from <laughs> Paul Giamatti's Dr. Zayas. Even worse from from Tim Burton's Planet of the Apes. Um, so uh, to kind of get your... Uh, you know your your mojo back a little bit. Um, I might have here. You want to have that Jeremy Renner uh, shape. You want to get in Jeremy Renner kind of shape. I've got Jeremy Renner's workout here. Um, yeah. So if if you if you're interested, um, here's here's what you got to do. First thing you want to do um, is probably smoke about five packs of cigarettes a day because he smoked so much in this movie. Um, can you smoke while you're out on on patrol? I, I just feel like that's not. Oh, you can. Yeah. Okay, I wasn't sure that was yeah, a thing. Um, it,
0: a quick aside. Um, so, like, in, I mean, I don't know how it is now, but back then, when you're driving around in a Humvee, I did a lot of driving in a Humvee, you you can't smoke in them. Okay. Like, if you're driving around on base or something, you can't smoke. But, yeah, when when we got to Iraq, it's, you, you know, all bets are off. You're, we're driving along smoking. And, um, yeah. You can pretty much... That's one thing I forgot to mention. That scene where they get they're drinking and they're partying. And oh they're yeah, drinking all this hard liquor. I don't know what those EOD guys do, but <laughs> that never happens. <laughs> uh, like, if that, if someone got caught drinking like that, they'd be in huge trouble. Yeah. So I always thought
1: I too that alcohol was banned there, right? Like, isn't yeah. that like not a thing? Like you couldn't do that. I mean, I'm not sure that it happened, but yeah. obviously, but I don't think they had open access to those kinds of things because you saw all those people lined up selling things, right. you know, to American soldiers like DVDs. Yeah. And I never saw anything like that. Taste of home, yeah, which, again, I was another thing, another side really fast, which I, I always thought that, like, you know, there was no, like, clear-cut. Um, speaking of smoking, which is kind of what brought that, you know, kind of triggered me here, um, there was no, like, clear-cut idea on how to handle some of the situations that these soldiers were faced with. You know, it wasn't like anything in the handbook. There was no like procedures that they trained for that. I feel like a lot of that stuff they were kind of making up as they went along maybe. And that's kind of what the takeaway I had from some scenes of that film where like my favorite one is like where he looks in the trunk of that car and he like takes his suit off and they're like, what are you doing? He's just like, it doesn't matter if I have this suit on or not. He's like, if I'm going to die, I'm going to die comfortably. You know what I mean? So I, I was like, God, like that's awesome. freaking ballsy. But, All right, um, so
0: I've smoked my five packs of cigarettes. Yeah,
1: you want to oh, yeah. sit in a sauna um, for a good half hour and uh, get your, you know, nice and sweaty. Sweat out the nicotine. Yes, yeah, sweat out the nicotine and, and liquor from the night before. You want to stretch real, real good. Um, and then here's workout part one. You want to do some dips, um, three sets of uh, 10 on that. You want to do three sets of 10 pull-ups. You want to do some push-ups, mm-hmm. which are kind of a staple of um, uh, the the pump action workout. Air squats are also really good. Uh you want to move then into uh that's probably day one. And then part two, uh you want to do some bench pressing, um, that three sets of 10 on that. Uh tricep cable pushdowns, because the tries are a really overlooked part of the arms. Uh and then your your basic workout part three would be sit-ups. You want to do three sets of 25 or until you fail. You want to do some planking. Um, for those gut shots mm-hmm. that when you're drinking real hard, you want to punch <laughs> each other in the stomach. Right. Uh, yeah, so you want to just plank until you fail. So uh, that's your basic uh, Jeremy Renner uh, superhero workout there for you. So if you want to do that, that'd be awesome. Don't throw
0: yourself
1: up. Yeah, throw this movie on and, and uh, light up, take a couple of shots, and work out. That's That's what I say. So... Uh, do you think want to close it out we're, we're pushing this is the longest episode I think we've had yet so yeah an hour and 15 minutes so
0: um, yeah I don't know Iraq War um, it's 20th anniversary of the
1: invasion yeah thank you for your service and in
0: December 2011 eight and a half years um, 4,000 something Americans died hundreds of thousands of Iraqis mm-hmm. so Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Just Interesting. don't.
1: Tell, yeah, don't don't tell Bush that though. But uh, yeah, so we're gonna think we'll wrap this one up. Um, thank you guys for listening. If you, any other veterans out there want to share their stories, we'd, well, I'd like to hear them. I love to hear some of these stories about the authenticity of this film or some of the uh, experiences they had um, that were similar or something like that. Uh, let us know. You can find us over at Pump Action underscore Podcast over on Instagram.
0: Especially that guy.
1: Yeah, we lost him. <laughs> yeah, we lost him. I guess he wasn't too interested in our our VCR episode. What is this VCR? What is this? So yeah, we lost that guy, um, but we, we gained a lot more Canadians. I will say so. Uh, hey, yeah, out there in uh, in uh, the, the Great White North. to do? Yeah, uh, a slap shot. <laughs> Be a good one. A Canadian. Film. So, yeah, so we're going to wrap this one up. So thank you guys for listening. Um, we will be back here uh, probably in about another couple of weeks or so with another film. Um, we haven't decided yet. We're going to probably talk about that here in a little bit. So for uh, TIE Fighter and d we wish you uh, all the gains this, this upcoming summer season. So later. Uh,